am absolutely thrilled to be with a very good friend and mentor and in every way a spiritual father, the Reverend Canon Jeremy Hazelock, who's coming to us um, from London. Canon Hazelock has a storied career in the church. He's been ordained a priest uh, nearly 40 years and he has served in London. He has served in the Diocese of Chichester. He has uh, been involved in virtually every aspect of church governance. He has been a cathedral uh, vice dean and presenter. And uh, in his so-called retirement, he may be busier than ever, uh, serving uh, as an assistant at two churches and preaching all over the world. You were in the United States a few months ago, preaching in two different states. Um, but you were also a member of, uh, retired, but a member of the ecclesiastical household of Her Majesty the Queen, um, Her Late Majesty the Queen. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today, and I'm very grateful for you to join in with us. One question to begin with, we're all watching BBC, we're all watching things live streamed. We're seeing the queues going around the Thames and the hours and hours of people who are, you know, how long they're waiting in line. And it's something that the world literally has not seen in 70 years. This is brand new for everybody. What is, what is the general feeling in London on the ground? What is the mood? What, just, this is, this is an unprecedented event in the world. I saw, um, an article that is, assuming or projecting that billions of people will watch the funeral on Monday. So as someone who's living through this, how surreal is it? What is it? What does it feel like? What is the mood of the people? The first thing I would want to draw our attention to, and it's, it, this may sound strange, but it's the silence. Uh, the crowds on the streets who've been witnessing these events, I mean, even crowding the streets to watch Her Majesty's coffin come from the uh, airfield to um, Buckingham Palace yesterday. Uh, the, the, they were all silent. Uh, and the only thing they were able to sort of do to articulate what they wanted to try and say was to applaud. So you had silence. There was no chat. There was no frivolity. The streets were very, very quiet. But as the Queen went past, the body of the Queen went past in the in the hearse, people applauded. The queue, which is now, I think, something like four miles long uh, and probably nine or ten hours to get actually into the Westminster Hall, Yes, people are chatting, uh, but there's an extraordinarily subdued feeling about it. So there's a sense of awe that something has happened that is awesome. I'm sorry to use a favorite American word, but to use it in its real, real context, which is something happened has happened which is awesome, which we're all witnessing and which we have been given a part in. Yes, not every one of us will be able to... Um, file past the coffin of Her Majesty in Westminster Hall. I certainly can't wait that long standing up and moving along for, but symbolically, Her Majesty is there still for us and for people to silently just pay the tribute. 
So that's the first thing I would like to remark on is the silence. The second is that this has confounded all expectations. You know, pundits in the last few years have said that monarchy is outdated and that, well, you know, uh, the institution has had its day and once the Queen has uh, died, then the whole thing is going to go fat. And I want to say two things, really. First of all, the extraordinary affection which the Queen was held in has has now been more than amply demonstrated, both in Scotland and in 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 England by the enormous turnout of respectful, quiet, awestruck people. But secondly, the transition to, which is the a part of hereditary monarchy, the transition to the new reign has been accomplished without any incident. What country in the world passes it head of state seamlessly, passing a baton from one to another? And because of the inspired decision to make the accession council and the proclamation of the new king uh, a public event broadcast by the, the media, and by the tremendous speech address that the new king gave his nation, the whole thing seems just to have, have passed as it was always intended to pass, mm -hmm. from mother to son, from father to daughter, whatever, um, with the minimum of fuss. And I think that's something really to, to ponder. Uh, certainly, King Charles needs our prayers, uh, but I think he's made the most wonderful start. So all these feelings are buzzing around in London, the feeling of awe at being part of uh, the Queen's uh, obsequies, the, the funeral, the feeling of inclusion in being uh, able to participate in the accession of our new monarch, his extraordinary energy and diligence in, in um, introducing himself uh, to his, his, the nation of which he is now the monarch, uh, in which he's combined a wonderful appreciation of his mother with an agenda, which is basically her agenda, continuing. So well, that's what London feels like at the moment. And I think we'll continue to feel like uh, right up until until the funeral. I mean, these crowds are not going to go away along the embankment. They're going to come continue to, to, to file past Her Majesty. And then I think the streets will be, uh, uh, both in London and in Windsor, will again be lined with people who will be perhaps watching the service on their phones, but want to be there when the, um, the cortege goes past after the funeral. And as you say, um, the world is coming to the funeral, mm -hmm. uh, re represented by its, its great leaders, but also the world will be watching the funeral, I think, and people with, with, uh, with great interest. I was absolutely struck in 2018 when you were very kind to allow me to accompany you to a, the Buckingham Palace uh, tea party. And that sense of silence was the one thing that I took away as being one of the most remarkable aspects of the entire day. I was trying to imagine how things would happen in this country if the, if the country's most famous individual were to walk in front of you. There would be all kinds of chatter and, and people calling out and trying to get attention. But when she walked by, you could hear a pin drop. And, and at that party, as, as you know better than I, 
where all sorts and conditions uh, were represented. There were people of the aristocracy, the royalty, but also ordinary folk who were given an honor to be there. But everyone understood that this was not um, a god walking in our midst, but this was something that was... How would you say it? I mean, this is a, a woman who em the, all the nation's aspirations and, and um, she embodied that virtue of duty and service and fidelity and constancy, something that the world so desperately needs to see and in recent times appears to be lacking because we're so fractured, uh, so wounded. And here is this, here is the nation's mother, a grandmother, something that even I think is felt among Americans by some, not all, obviously, but it's um, truly remarkable to see that. And your comment about King Charles III, even the only so-called gaffe that's been making the news over here about the pen is one of the most enduring things we've seen. Isn't it enduring? Yeah. I, mean, I, I, have a, I have ink on my finger now from a fountain pen and every stinking time, as he said, it happens. <laughs> I think we love him more, you know, watching that. Um, I think so. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to sound a sour note, but I think the unprovoked attack of the New York Times upon uh, upon King Charles is is really uh, entirely unjustified and based on a real ignorance of the immense amount of philanthropy he has engaged in and encouraged in others over the years. I mean, to 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 paint him as a sort of uh, multimillionaire who uh, was in, intent on building up a personal fortune completely misinterprets uh, what he's done and the huge amount of the revenues of his estates. He's he's plowed into countless schemes uh, for um, uh, social welfare and the like. But anyway, that's that's uh, let's not talk about that. Well, I think I think there is a sense to go back to my earlier point, a sense of envy around, um, maybe around the world, because what other nation has one figure that could unify the people as much? Uh, but it also, we also have full fat monarchy in the sense of this is not a slimmed down, uh, you know, fat free um, monarchy riding about on a bicycle and, uh, and living in a council flat and uh, being sort of pseudo democratic. Ours comes with the full panoply of bands and curtsies and bows, processions and uniforms, Ruritanian costumes, uh, heralds dressed up like playing cards. Um, we have we have the full fat version. Yeah. And I I really think people actually do uh, envy that as well. They do. Because, 100% they do. Uh, and who does it better? I mean, nobody. Nobody. You're right. So you are a, and you have to correct me, you, you have been for um, some time a member of the ecclesiastical household, a chaplain to the queen. And yes. you're retired, but you you still you are an honorary chaplain, or what is your status now? Well, um, the uh, uh, it's an interesting question. The wonderful uh, illuminated document I have with the Queen's seal on the bottom when she appointed me says very very clearly that my appointment ends with my seventieth birthday or the death of the monarch, whichever comes first. Now, in fact, mine ended when I on my seventieth birthday. But of course, it would have ended uh, anyway because um, the the monarch has died, and at that moment, the ecclesiastical household, like much of the rest of the royal household, is is formally dissolved. This is symbolised by the Lord Chamberlain breaking his staff of office and throwing it in into 
the grave, which you will be able to see at, uh, uh, at the um, service in um, in St. George's, Windsor. So um, I think the convention is that all those who are eligible are automatically reappointed and will receive new uh, licenses from from the, the from the new king, just as the, um, the other royal households will be will be reappointed in, in due course. But uh, were the queen still to be uh, alive, I am. Um, Still accorded the privilege of wearing the scarlet cassock, which is the badge of the of her of, of all her household. It's the the color of the guards, the, uh, the the liveries of footmen, and so on. And also the the wonderful um, silver gilt uh, um, brooch that we are given, uh, and the privilege of attending on various um, uh, royal events as a as a retired former a former chaplain. So, so that's my current status. It's a status also that's filled with 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 wonderful memories of of when one was actually um, uh, doing the job and and feeling hugely privileged, uh, so to do. But don't let people have the impression that the uh, the the College of Chaplains to the Queen. There are thirty two of us plus um, the Dean and Sub Dean of the Chapel Royal and the Clerk of the Closet. Don't let people feel that we're in constant attendance upon Her Majesty. Sure. Once the, upon a time, that might have been the case, right? You know, once upon a time, it, it was the case. And and uh, when we're called the the, the, the the list of preaching, as you will probably remember, is still called the rotor of weights, which is a reminder of ladies in waiting and gentlemen in waiting, chaplains in waiting. One had a, a tour of duty, but uh, Her Majesty's spiritual needs have been met by a much closer, smaller team of domestic chaplains, um, uh, uh, deputy chaplains in ordinary to Her Majesty and the domestic chaplain. And they, of course, would uh, would be the first people on hand were the Queen to, to need anything, but also they're the ones that administered to her Sunday by Sunday. And indeed, uh, on the services that are held or were held in uh, Buckingham Palace and in uh, Windsor Castle uh, on weekdays when Her Majesty was known very quietly, unobtrusively, to join with her ladies-in-waiting and, and to attend the service of Holy Communion according to the 1662 Book, Book of Common Prayer. Her Majesty was indifferent to high church or low church, but what Her Majesty did enjoy, and this is a quote really from <laughs> Bishop Richard Charters, who was um, Bishop of London and one of the royal family's favourite bishops. He said, what the Queen doesn't like is long church. Mm. She likes short church. And uh, she goes, she went to Matins on Sunday to the Scottish Kirk when she was at Balmoral. But she received Holy Communion regularly uh, in her domestic chapel celebrated by the dean of the chapel the sub dean of the chapel royal or one of her other domestic chaplains so hers was a very very devout spiritual life it it was uh, church going on sunday was an absolute part of her her, her routine and her tradition uh, a woman following in the footsteps of her father who really liked routine and order. Her, her her year was divided up in a way that, you know, her, her diary was almost made 
uh, up a year, a year in advance, and she she loved the fact that, that it kept her going. Mm. But part of that spirit routine was this profound spirituality which required her to attend divine worship on Sundays, and indeed, I think, to receive Holy Communion pretty regularly at an extra service in the course of the week. Well, would, that, would, that, would that many of our congregants okay. were as devout as that? Yeah, quite. Your your point is taken. She's she's not ringing you up and at late at night asking for your opinion on an interpretation of Paul's no. letter to the Corinthians. However, no. Let me suspect that 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 the new king will do exactly that. For a lot of people, he is he's inherited from his father a, a really strong uh, interest in theological s- speculation and spirituality. And, and while I don't think the Queen's piety was based on that sort of approach, I think hers was a simple um, Bible and BCP Christianity, which expressed itself in church going rather than speculation. I think the new king will be very much concerned to ring up the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Dean of the Chapel Royal, his spiritual directors, uh, uh, to, to, to mull things over theologically. But but being a member of less than three dozen priests who are wearing the scarlet cassock uh, is pretty extraordinary. Even though you're not tending to her daily spiritual needs, you certainly were a member of a small community household um, yes, that, that, that had the privilege of being around her. And I remember you were... Um, you, you have you've, you've been in her presence and met her a number of occasions before you were her chaplain um, and certainly afterwards. Is there um, a particular story that that will always come to mind immediately? And, and you've told me some great some great ones of when you were able to command her to stop in Norwich when you had visiting choristers there and how you could, you know, she's so programmed and you could command her to her walking up to you. Uh, I think it was in Windsor. Uh, looking at a table or the roof or something. Is there something that, that, especially for listeners in the United States, would really appreciate to have a glimpse into into the the character and nature? Of- well, Rob, <laughs> yes, all those all those stories are are, are true. Um, I, I particularly remember the late Prince um, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, who was with the uh, Queen when when uh, they came to Norwich Cathedral to to open our our new buildings, and they. Um, when they got to the door, and I, um, I said to the head verger, uh, the sacrist, uh, you better signal to the organ loft that uh, the royal party has arrived. And Prince Philip overheard that, and he saw me gesture to the sacrist, who then waved his silver verge uh, backwards and forwards so that to catch the eye of the organist up in the gallery. And Prince Philip said, Wonderfully sophisticated communication system. <laughs> but uh, uh, the Queen um, entertains her her, her chaplains, uh, entertained uh, her chaplains periodically to a day uh, at, at Windsor Castle where she would give us um, a tour. Uh, uh, we could go to a service in, in St. George's Chapel. We can have a look at the royal collections, which are particularly interesting to see uh, the Leonardo drawings and things like that and, uh, without tourists uh, pressing around us. And she would then give us um, afternoon tea and drinks, champagne, in which she would just come and talk to us and, and mingle with us. And I remember saying to her, this is after my retirement from Norwich and moving to London, I said, I'm awfully jealous of your majesty. 
And she <laughs> raised an eyebrow and said, well, goodness me, why? So I said, well, Mom, um, you have a wonderful home still in Norfolk. And I uh, uh, miss Norfolk terribly. Now I'm living in London. And I uh, just think it's so lovely for you to be able to go there uh, whenever you want and to, to, to stay in Sandringham. And she said, yes. She said, um, where, are you, where are you in London now? And I said, uh, in Bethnal Green, ma'am. And she said, oh, <laughs> that is very different. <laughs> and there was a great giggle. And I said, well, I don't know when you were last in Bethnal Green, ma'am, but it's very nice. Bethnal Green being East London, which is... Yes, and yeah, uh, yeah. perhaps uh, she drove through it occasionally, but, it, but uh, her visits there were not very frequent. I can't imagine the two of you talking because you're, you're six foot three, two. three, six foot two. And she was two foot eight. I mean, she was a tiny thing. She was very, very yes. Small. Well, that, of course, I, I mean, you're now getting me reminiscing, but that's a, a, another occasion when I had the privilege of a, quite a long conversation with her. Um, I was at a, a, an event in St. George's Windsor, which was followed by a, a wine reception in St. George's Hall, which is the huge hall that had been gutted uh, by fire. And uh, I was a relatively new canon of Norwich Cathedral, and I didn't think I would be on Her Majesty's radar. And so I wandered off and was looking at the, um, uh, at this, at the newly restored, beautifully built uh, roof of, of, of St. George's Hall. And I was then, I, I am quite tall, and I was then conscious. I couldn't see anybody, but I was conscious of somebody uh, at my side who'd moved up to, uh, up to my side. And it was the Queen who'd seen me all on, all alone and uh, just came up and she said, uh, it's marvellous, isn't it? And I wondered whether she was talking about the champagne she was giving us and the party. or the. Uh, and then we have the conversation that you will recall me telling you about, about the, the great table that is uh, built for, for um, royal banquets that stretches the full length of the, of the hall. And she then took me by the arm into the Waterloo chamber and actually showed me all the bits of the table that were going to be assembled. It was really rather like talking to one's aunt. It was very nice. It's comforting to know that the most famous woman in the world has the, the courtesy and the kindness to recognize someone who is off on their own and to come, and she may have been bored herself, right? Who knows? And then to come and, and to whisk you away and to make you feel at home in her own home. Well, it was very memorable. And I remember as soon as I got back to Norwich, I, ringing up my mother and saying, guess who I've been chatting to this afternoon? <laughs> So the funeral is Monday at uh, 11 a.m. And I checked the Abbey's website this morning and no order of service is published. But I uh, imagine I've been going through this book called British Royal and State Funerals. And, and I've looked at her father's funeral, which um, I did not compare it to her husband's. But I think some people will be stunned at how simple and brief um, royal funerals have been. Um, straight prayer book. Um, with her, her father's funeral, I think, had one or two hymns at the most. Um, her mother's funeral in 2002 was similar to Princess Diana's, I think, except for the music in terms of the, the structure and the order. Um, what do you expect we will see uh, Monday for the funeral? Um, I think I'd like to draw attention to two things. Um, the first of all, the English 
the British love processions and and pageantry, even when associated with with the with funeral rites. And so there will be a great sense of expectation of actually again seeing the um, the coffin on the gun carriage being brought from Westminster Hall to the Abbey. People will be able to get a, a chance again of seeing this. And then after the service, the coffin will be drawn as right the way to um, the Wellington Arch at Hyde Park Corner before it's put into the hearse. So people will line the streets uh, to see a procession rather like yesterday's go by. So that will be an element of the funeral which people will be able to engage engage with. As far as the service is, itself is concerned, um, there will be two parts to it. Now, the first part will be in Westminster Abbey and will be, I think, basically the 1928 prayer book uh, rite. Um, certainly that, that linguistic register and certainly that, that feeling. It'll be in, enriched by wonderful music, quite how much I don't know, but probably not a lot of congregational hymn singing. For one thing, many of the people gathered there will probably not be used to singing uh, English hymns apart from anything else. But there will be some hymns. There will be wonderful solemn music, uh, both for the coming in and the and the and the going out. Uh, there will be um, lessons read by the prime minister and the um, uh, head of the the secretary of the Commonwealth, uh, Baroness Scotland, uh, representing. The Queen's relationship, the late Queen's relationship with this country and with the Commonwealth of Nations. So that 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 will be interesting, and there will be um, uh, prayers by the Dean and the Archbishop of Canterbury, and probably a, a short homily. Um, but it'll be very much a, a, a sort of enlarged version of the of the service you saw at. Windsor when Prince Prince Philip died. In in my view, I haven't seen an order of service yet. It's probably at the printers, uh, but it'll be made available, as is the custom, online. So people who are watching the service will, will can can download a, a copy of the service. So that's part, that's part one. Yeah. Then it becomes slightly more intimate in part two. Her Majesty's body will be taken uh, to Windsor by road. Uh, there will be quite a long drive round the Great Park in in Windsor, which will be where the road will be lined by uh, people there wanting to pay their last respects. Then there will be a very short committal service in uh, in St George's itself, uh, which will be attended by a much more limited. A group of people more directly concerned with the royal household and with with the uh, um, uh, with the, the sort of daily life of the Queen, it, it, it'll be a more intimate, invited, invited um, congregation. And then Her Majesty's body will be commended uh, to the care of her Lord, and her body will be lowered into the royal crypt in the way that you saw the royal vault, in the way that you saw Prince Philip's body. Um, he's already down there. Uh, and she will join him, but only temporarily, because once the service is over and things have been cleared, her body and Prince Philip's body will both be moved to the um, to the royal vault 
under, underneath the little modern chapel on the side where her father and mother are buried and where um, uh, Princess Margaret's ashes are. So there'll then be um, four caskets and the and the ashes all together in that little chapel, mm. uh, in the crypt beneath it, the vault beneath it. Apart from the processions, apart from the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands gathered outside, the billions watching on television, world leaders gathered together. The service itself, however, is essentially the same that would happen to uh, an unnamed person yeah, in, a, in a parish church anywhere. Absolutely. Yes, where, where that tradition of, uh, of prayer book worship continues, which is a lot of places, uh, where the service to be for you or me in St. Bartholomew the Great in London, that's more or less what will happen in Westminster Abbey, uh, though obviously surrounded by rather more um, pomp and pageantry and, and, and musical resource. And I noticed that reading about her mother's funeral, that the clergy were all in black copes, and the altar was in black. I, I'm assuming it'd be similar for hers as well. Uh, this is, of course, the first funeral, uh, royal funeral to take place in Westminster Abbey for a long time. They usually have been all at, um, at Windsor. Uh, the um, the Abbey has particularly fine collection of of, uh, of funeral vestments and things, and I don't know what they're actually going to use, but I imagine that there will be historic copes and they will be either dark purple or black. I'm not sure that they'll be in cloth of gold and white. Well, that would be something that would be surprising, I think, to Americans who are perhaps used to going to funerals where there is white and it's a celebration of life and all that. I mean, there is certainly in a Christian funeral an absolute bedrock character of hope. But in the traditional rite, there is also a recognition of mortality, of um, pleading for the mercy of the Lord, that the deceased will rest and repose in his mercy and then move from strength to strength. And I think as this is prayer book worship on a global stage, there is a statement that's being made uh, and a powerful one and one that will inform the spiritual minds of, of everyone who's watching. So I'm looking forward to seeing um, how that will how that will play out? A little tale. One of the jobs that I've been privileged to do in my nearly forty years of priesthood was to be the domestic chaplain to a bishop, the Bishop of Chichester, who at the time was very elderly. Um, uh, he, he continued to be bishop, I think, till he was eighty-five. But <laughs> um, because he was, the, but that's as maybe. But one thing he said to me. He did say, if I were to die, if I am to die in office, or you have anything to do with arranging my funeral, he said, let it not be in white. Mm -hmm. Because the, there was this great thing with particularly Roman Catholic funerals that it was all in white and the hall was white. And, and I said, why not, Father? He said, um, because I do not wish to anticipate the judgment of Almighty God. Mm. Mm. Uh, listeners to St. Timothy's will perhaps see something of our own practice in the royal funeral and that we've been using violet or black for, for some time now um, for that purpose. Well, I want to shift um, a couple of questions, but I want to shift to something else that I think that maybe those of us in America are envious of, and that is a 
cultural understanding of the importance of mourning and the rituals that are associated with that that seem to help the grieving process. There's everything from what you wear. And of course, you and I have friends who are all into what you should wear during certain occasions. And I have a set of mourning um, bands that I wore at evening prayer the day she died and, and all of this. But um, it's been really interesting for people. You have them there. Yes, the, the same ones. Um, I think that we, certainly in this country, have lost that cultural practice of mourning that helps you process and, and, and move forward, but also to allow our grief to marinate in, in something that is hopeful, that grief is, is natural because we've lost someone that we've loved, and, and the Queen herself said that grief is the price we pay for love. Um, is there any, do you have any comment about, about just the importance of these practice, everything from, and we don't do it as much as, as, as years past, but lining your letters with a black border and what you wear and, 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 and toning down celebrations and festivities during that period. And then do you feel that after Monday, after 10 days of, of national mourning, then there's, we can move on? Um, the first thing I would say is that I think America is by no means unique in the, this uh, drift away from traditional uh, mourning and funeral customs. I think it's very much the same uh, here in England. And indeed, death is something of a of a of a taboo subject. I, I beca have become increasingly irritated how nobody dies anymore; they pass. And that's just absolutely so unchristian. I mean, our Lord didn't pass on the cross. Our Lord died and was told us all the time that he was going to die. And uh, uh, he, he didn't pass over or pass away. But we use these circumlocutions in a way to try and sort of distance ourselves from death. Very few people die at home anymore. Uh, they die in hospital with all sorts of wires and tubes and things attached to them. And often uh, the family are not, not there in time to, to, to be there for death. So people are increasingly distanced uh, from death. And with that distance, I think it has disappeared uh, much of the traditional apparatus of, of mourning. And it takes something like a royal death especially one of someone who is so loved, so beloved, and who has been for 70 years the absolute bedrock of this country, whether acknowledged or not. Uh, it's, it's, of course, being acknowledged now, but, you know, we just took her for granted for such a long time in the most nicest possible way. But with her death, suddenly people are looking for ways of actually doing something uh, somebody wrote rather rattily to the newspaper to say, I do wish people wouldn't leave all these flowers in plastic wrappings uh, outside Buckingham Palace. All these, what a waste of flowers. What a waste of, 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 uh, of cellophane and, 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 uh, and, and stuff that can't be recycled. Uh, surely people should give money to, the, to, the, to charity. That completely misses the point. People need something to do. Even the most inarticulate person can go into a church and light a candle if they can't say a prayer. Yeah. Even the most inarticulate person groping for some way to show their grief can, lay, can go and lay a bunch of, of Tesco's flowers wrapped in cellophane 
uh, against the railings of Buckingham Palace or, or, or wherever. It's a, a need to do something. Of course, in the great old-fashioned tradition, the London clubs, uh, um, the Athenaeum, my own club, and all the ones in St. James's are all in mourning. They have wonderful black swags under all their windows and, and mourning drapes hanging down the full um, height of the facade of the building. They look absolutely wonderful in their mourning um, uh, austerity. Uh, I don't think many people will uh, put black bands around their letters anymore, though, again, official court correspondence ought to have a black band uh, uh, round it for the for the period of, um, of, of, of royal mourning. But certainly, I think that, that this major funeral with the with the the death of Her Majesty, not her passing or her passing away or crossing the Rainbow Bridge, um, the death of Her Majesty has produced in people a, a, a again a sense of awe about the majesty of death. Yeah, we use both those terms deliberately. Uh, it's a great mystery. Well, and here is the best-known person in England, if not in the world, actually, you know, part of that that mystery now, and they want somehow to 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 be able to uh, engage with that. You're absolutely correct. I mean, we we as human beings tend to make every bit of information or news about ourselves immediately, and so when the Queen dies, our first thought is to examine how that impacts me and how I feel, and and all of that. And you're right. Our our modern practices have made death an abstraction. Once upon a time, not too long ago, someone dies. Someone has to dig the hole. Someone waits with the body. Someone mourns. And, you know, in, in, in medieval England, people would leave money in their wills for people to, to pay to come mourn at their funeral and to come to their funeral. Now we don't see the body. We don't see the death. We don't see the body. And with um, the abstraction of cremation even leading to the idea when the ashes enter the church, oftentimes, there's no sense that a human being was there, even though clearly there was. And I think that you're right. This is tapping into something to uh, to force us to face our own mortality, again, through the lens of, of the late queen, so that we can to come to the truth that, that where she is, one day we will be. And what, what does that mean? And these rituals and this mourning, I think, helps us in a way that we can't articulate, helps us to sort of process and engage with those um, very important thoughts and, and realities. Moving beyond the funeral, um, this is a big topic and it may be too big for this conversation, but I'd be curious to hear some brief thoughts about, um, because now the next big event will happen, I imagine, next year, next summer, the coronation. June, I think. June of King Charles III. And then this will be the second time this will be broadcast, but now um, you know, in HD, and we'll see the sacral monarchy on full display. I think I'm right. I said this in a homily, so if I'm wrong, don't correct me. Um, I believe that King Charles III will be the only anointed Christian monarch in the world. Is that accurate? Yes. That means as as was Queen Elizabeth II. As was Queen Elizabeth. And I, I think that is an extraordinary fact. Um, what, and you and I have talked 
um, and you have you have lectured about anointing of a monarch, completely biblical, obviously, and and I imagine he will enter into the abbey to handle Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, you know, anointing Solomon. As this being a kind of an eighth sacrament, can you speak just briefly about the importance? of uh, a sacral monarchy and what that actually means for people like me who are Anglicans, English Catholics, but live, and happily so, live in, in a republic without a monarchy. Yes, it is a big subject. Um, and I'd, let, I'd like to start quite early on about, uh, about each of us as Christians. Uh, uh, we were anointed at our baptism uh, nowadays, perhaps twice with the, the uh, oil of catechumens and then again with the oil of chrism. Uh, some of us have been subsequently anointed uh, to the ministerial priesthood uh, with the oil of chrism. Um, many of us, clergy and lay, will have been anointed uh, in the sacrament of healing and will pray that we'll be anointed on our way to our final journey uh, as we as we approach death um, anointing is a has a, a sacramentality about it. it is involved in the seven uh, sacraments of the church or, or most of them and the anointing of the monarch was regarded before um, the uh, number of sacraments was finalized as being seven, was, was regarded as a sacrament in itself. And here, I think, importantly, is a lay person, a layman or woman, who is on, anointed by God, uh, chrismed, Christed, yeah, an anointed one, uh, in order to, uh, to fulfill a particular role in society. I think that role is an extension of the priesthood of all believers, uh, which into which we are all anointed at baptism. But it's a, it's an anointing to um, to enable someone to perform a sp specific God-given ministry within society, not just within the church of that society. The anointing of the monarch is nothing to do with being supreme head of the. Um, a supreme governor of the Church of England, or, or uh, it's, it's about the monarch's relationship with his people and the job that he's called upon by God to do. And it's an enabling sacrament that sets this person aside uh, for this particular purpose. Um, I don't know if that helps in any way, because I think it rather universalizes it in a way that talking about it as being head of the church, which some people do, uh, has has confused. Um, the anointing of, of the monarch is, is to show that uh, this person is there not through force of arms, though some anointed monarchs, of course, have got there in that way, but today, not through force of arms, but through... Uh, through, through God's provision, and in our country, God's provision is a hereditary monarchy. But I think even in the Middle Ages, elected monarchs were were, um, were anointed to set them aside for a particular purpose. 
Of course, it also involves it, uh, uh, essentially the, uh, uh, the connection between the church and the and the crown, because the person who does the anointing is the Archbishop of Canterbury, or or you know whoever is uh, head of um, of uh, of the church, in where the practice still continues, in effect only in our country. But it does mean that the church representing God has some part to play in, as it were, upholding the role of uh, this person who's going to exercise a symbolic supremacy as head of state. Uh, it links that ministry, that secular ministry of head of state, it links it, sacralizes it, if you like, in some way, by involving the church and thus really by bringing in, 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 in God to the whole thing. Sure. Um, does that does that, uh, it does. Does that make and, sense? And, and of course, I'm sure you've read Rowan Williams' wonderful article about Queen Elizabeth, servant of God, where she speaks about about what you exactly said of the anointing is is setting her apart to uh, to play a role in society, an important one. And I think for for many people, monarchy is immediately associated with tyranny. And to have this positive example that's biblical, it is Christian, and I think there is a temptation, maybe in my part of the world, to view democracy as as uniquely Christian or the only Christian form of government. Um, but of course, the queen, the, the monarch, is anointed in, in today's understanding of the role of the monarch is anointed to defend democracy. Correct. Yes. And parliamentary government, the democratic principles of this country, are constitutionally upheld and held in place by the anoint, an, an anointed head of state. It has nothing to do with tyranny. Uh, many of those anointed in centuries past may have been indeed tyrannical, uh, but that wasn't a product of their anointing. It was a corruption of their anointing. And certainly since um, uh, Queen Victoria's time, and uh, uh, where the monarchy has tried to be uh, uh, an upholder of the democratic process as it has evolved in this country, uh, the anointing is an enabling sacrament, if you like, um, for the monarch to tread tyranny under his or her feet, and to defend to defend the the, the, the democratic rights of the nation over which they preside. Yeah, I think it's in in the prayers of the whole state of Christ Church. I think we pray for you know Christian rulers or Christian princes, depending on how what the language was. Mm. Is the idea that that to lead government and and government has a real spiritual component to it, done with virtue and done with justice, because justice, of course, is is associated with religion. And so I think what is powerful in the statement that's being made is of the head of state deriving her authority from this, um, or some of the authority from this act of anointing, this completely religious, spiritual act, gives a new meaning that, that government is not that which is only expedient or possible, but that which is just and that which is virtuous and that which points us toward the good. And that is a, a powerful reminder when so much of world leaders are there because of the resources they had or because of the corruption they were able to manipulate, whatever. We see it all over the world stage now. It's a, it's a hopeful glimpse into what government 
ideally can and should be. I'm not suggesting that England has the best government or, or any of those things at all, but it does invite us to think about this from a different perspective of uh, one for prayer and, and, um, and how our Lord would want us to, to, to how we are to organize ourselves and to mete out justice and take care of one another. Um, the period between the Queen's funeral and the coronation of the new monarch uh, is a long one, not only because of all the huge amount of arrangements that have to be made, but also I think it's in order to encourage a period of reflection on what uh, hereditary monarchy and anointed monarchy, uh, sac sacral mon monarchy, uh, really means. And by that I mean the public square will be filled with comment and reflection and arguments this way and that about uh, the merits of the system. Uh, some of it will be disagreeable, some of it will be agreeable, but it will be, I think, a quite an interesting opportunity for people to reflect on the wonderful historical inheritance into which we have entered. I mean, people suddenly become aware of history at, at, at landmark events like the death of the monarch and, and the ceremonies surrounding the, the the funeral. We're connected, and with the coronation, we're connected with 11 centuries of history. I mean, the coronation rite, um, as Queen Elizabeth received it, and as I suspect, though somewhat abbreviated, King Charles III will, will also receive it, was originally drafted by St. Dunstan for King Edgar in 723, I think it was. I mean, it was, it's a very long time ago, and it's substantially the same right now with the, um, with the anointings and with the investiture, with the various uh, symbols of, 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 of kingship, scepter, sword, orb, and finally uh, uh, the crown. And the prayers that go with it, which again date really from the um, 8th century, um, make spiritual points of all of these uh, and invoke God's blessing on an aspect of, of, of what the monarch still, we, we still expect the monarch to do, if not in an interventional way, but in a, sim, in, in a symbolic way. Hmm. So the, the basis of justice remains uh, the monarch. And everybody's clucking around who are QCs at the moment because they're all trying to remember that now KCs, for example, Queen's Councils, the senior barristers all become King's Councils. Um, uh, but uh, uh, and the, the, the robes that the uh, judges wear with their scarlet are, are a reminder, a visual reminder of the fact that they're part of the, the, the whole uh, monarchical setup. The, the, the monarch is the fount of justice, the fount of honor, the defender of democracy, the head of the church, uh, a, a symbolic figure with huge responsibilities, but no power. This has been amazing, and I have uh, I would want to talk for hours and hours more, um, and maybe at a later date we can. But thank you very much, Father, for your insight. For your, my very great pleasure and privilege. For, for all that you've done, and and um, and we we look forward to watching with you and saying our prayers for Her Late Majesty, and of course our prayers for King Charles the Third. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>